Hello and thanks for joining us this week on Friday Formula, a weekly motorsport podcast where this week we're preparing to strap on a fresh pair of slicks and head out onto the Varianti Bassa to tackle the Temple of Speed at Imola. I'm Owen Bellwood and once again I'm joined by Will Longman. How are you doing this week, Will? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, it feels like forever ago since we last had a race, but it's only the second Grand Prix of the season and I'm hoping it lives up to expectations. Uh, how about you? Yeah, kind of feeling the same. It feels like the three-week break in between Bahrain and Imola has been longer than the winter break, but the race in Bahrain gave us a lot of excitement, so I think the anticipation is sky-high ahead of this week. Yeah, especially given that Imola gave us such a good race last year. It's hard to believe that it dropped off the calendar at all, but that's what we're talking about this week. We're talking all about Imola and the fact that it is a classic track. It has a lot of history, which you're going to be delving into. And I'm going to be looking at some specific races. But it did drop off the calendar. So any of the new fans, which I know in last week's episode, we kind of talked about when we became F1 fans, which was kind of the mid noughties or late noughties, your early tens, I think your first race was, probably never seen a race at Imola. I hadn't until 2020. No, I was the same. Watching last year was the first full race I'd seen there. So we both agreed this would be a great opportunity to find out a little bit more about what's made this circuit so special over the years. I'm interested because I've focused on uh, specifically the 1994 San Marino Grand Prix, which pretty obvious reasons, which if you don't know will become apparent later, but I've purposely not really looked at anything prior to that because, oh, and that was your domain. I I had one one race to look at and you had the rest of time. So why don't you kick us off and uh, start from the beginning? Yeah, so as, as we mentioned today, the cars are going to hit the, the track in Imola in Italy for the 2021 Formula One Pirelli Gran Premio del Made in Italy del Emily... Formula One Pirelli Grand Premio <laughs> del Made in Italy del Emilia Romagna Grand Prix, which is not what it's always been known as. This is going to be the 28th race at this circuit that has been an official Formula One event, but the circuit itself is known as the Autodroma Internazionale Enzo Edino Ferrari, and it obviously gets its name from Enzo Ferrari, who founded Scuderia Ferrari, and then his son. Dino, who sadly died in 1956 of leukemia. So that's where the name of the circuit itself comes from. And it's had quite a long history that's sort of seen it go through a few different geysers. So when it was first developed as a racetrack, it was actually a temporary site. And that was in 1953 when the foundations for the circuit were initially laid and areas of it were permanent racetrack. And then other areas were bits that were added in when it was needed for events. It was quite different to what we see today. It was still very high speed, but it didn't have a lot of the chicanes that we see uh, on today's layout. So it was a little bit shorter, still quite fast, but obviously not to the same regards as it is now, as it was a semi-permanent track. But that was back in 1953, and it didn't host Formula One cars until 1963. So it had undergone its own evolution and development up to that. The first Formula One cars to hit the track were part of a non-championship event. So it's still we're still a few years off 
a proper race, but that was won by Jim Clark with Lotus. The first championship event didn't come until 1980, when Imola stood in for the Italian Grand Prix, which, as we're all very familiar with, is usually held at Monza, which Will is convinced looks like a swan. Whether it looks like a pelican or a swan, there is simply something going on with Italian racetracks looking like birds, because Imola looks like a duck. Imola does does. 100% look like a duck. (laughs) Thank Um, you. So 1980 was the first time that it hosted a Formula One race, and that was the Italian Grand Prix. The race was quite uh, an interesting one. It was won by Nelson Piquet, who was driving a Brabham Ford at the time, and it was his third win of the season and his second win in succession. So it was quite a tight moment for the title battle as it then gave him the lead in the championship. That was back in the day when... um... Wasn't it they only took your six best results into account for the championship? Yeah, there's some strange rules about what it was that made up the Drivers' Championship that year. Yeah, I'd love to go back and apply like some of that logic to like Hamilton-Rosberg 2016 and see who would have come out on top. Break the points down to what they might have been in the 90s or the 80s, where it's like 10 points for the first place rather than mm. this 25-point gap. Yeah, because it's, it's great that so many people can now be in the points and that keeps the battles exciting through the year, but it would be really interesting to see how each season would have compared and if they would have stayed exciting if just the points were changed rather than the cars and the circuits yeah. that we go to. But back in the day, we weren't awarding 25 points for a win. So PK won the 1980 race. He was nearly half a minute ahead of Alan Jones, who came in second. And he was driving for Williams Ford. And then third place went to Carlos Ruterman, who was also driving for Williams Ford. So he was Jones's teammate. PK had qualified uh, in fifth. So he did have his own little battle to get up to the win. But he did come through from fifth on the grid to be leading by lap four. And then he just led the rest. <laughs> so there wasn't, wasn't a whole lot of competition for the win. But uh, the... Pole position was uh, Rene Arnoux, who just led for the two laps. And then Jean-Pierre Chaboulet was another lap. And then after that, Piquet came through and sort of trounced everyone. I think everyone went home halfway through. The race proved to be a really exciting spectacle. And teams were quite eager to go back to the track because it had offered a pretty exciting race the year before. But it went under a name change for the first time. And in 1981, it became the San Marino Grand Prix for the first time. The track itself isn't in San Marino, which is a nearby state in Italy, but it has taken the name San Marino Grand Prix for pretty much every single one of its runnings, apart from two so far and a third this year. What's super interesting is that there must have been this obsession when F1 was in its bubbling up phase, I don't know, as it was gaining popularity um, in the mainstream about being a world championship every Grand Prix has to be named after a country and they've picked San Marino I mean San Marino is like the second smallest country in the world or third I think after like the Vatican City and, the, and Monaco like you say Imola isn't in San Marino it doesn't actually have like anything to do with it but now it's happily the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix they don't mind saying uh, that that's not the, the full name sorry please correct me 
the Made in Italy del Emilia Romagna Grand Prix 2021. I do apologise. I won't be so disrespectful to this race again. But what do we have? Uh, the race in Mugello was Ferrari 80th celebration, Tuscan Grand Prix or whatever. And obviously you had Styria, you had the 70th anniversary, and they're not so stingy on giving the regions the identities uh, rather than tying it to a country. It did take on the title of the San Marino Grand Prix in 1981. The inaugural San Marino race was another quite memorable one. Only 14 cars started the race that year. There was a protest uh, around the running of the event, so there were quite a few sitting this one out. And then during the race, the Renaults of Alain Prost and René Arnoux actually retired, which left Ferrari to pretty much run away with the lead which you think is going to be boring. But then there was drama with team orders, even back in the 80s. And the two Ferraris of Villeneuve and Peroni were way off ahead. So the team asked them to slow down to try and save fuel and prevent a risk of any mechanical failures so that they would hold on to that one-two and definitely get the win. But as they slowed down, Villeneuve thought this meant that the cars would maintain position and wouldn't be racing. But Peroni didn't agree and overtook him. And then Villeneuve overtook Peroni. And then it came up to the last lap when they'd been sort of overtaking each other a few times. And Peroni actually did take the lead in the end, cross the line and win, which Villeneuve was not happy about. And following the race, he's quoted as saying, I'll never speak to Peroni again in my life. That's mad. Yeah. This is the 80s, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting. I guess that would have been one of the first instances of team orders or a drama from it. Yeah, I, th- I found it really interesting that team orders and people disagreeing over them has been part of the sport for so long. It's such a tradition. I would absolutely love to open up the channels between the drivers. Yeah, I really like in Formula E how they pop in to talk to the winner. Yeah. Team radio is one of the undercover highlights of a weekend, and it's yeah. nice to see that that tradition stems all the way back to 1982. <laughs> So it had quite a dramatic start of the San Marino event uh, and the San Marino Grand Prix stayed on the calendar until 2006. So it was a relatively long held event, which is probably why so many people think of it so fondly. And it's got all this association with such close racing. Over the years, there's been a few slightly dominant names. Michael Schumacher has the record for the most wins and he's won at uh, Imola seven times in total. And then behind him, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost have both won three times. And Damon Hill and Nigel Mansell both won the event twice. So it's quite a nice mix. And as we're returning this weekend, it'll be nice to see who else can get up on the podium of such a hallowed racetrack. In terms of constructors, After winning the first San Marino Grand Prix, Ferrari then went on to win another seven more. So they have eight wins at Imola and they're tied with Williams. They are joint to be the most successful. So whichever one wins this weekend out of those two could (laughs) clinch the title. I don't know who I'd put my money on. So while the circuit has been on the calendar since 1982 to 2006, solidly it has undergone quite a few changes it was such a fast track so to try and combat that and reduce the speed that the cars were running at 
few changes were made, such as extra chicanes to try and slow the cars down. And that means that over the years, the length of the track has got a little bit longer and it is now home to 19 corners in total, which is quite a, quite a nice number for a racetrack. And they are 10 right-handers and nine left-handers. So that's what the drivers will be up against this weekend. The sad side of this is that the changes were sort of brought about because of quite a few dramatic crashes on the on the circuit purely because drivers were going so fast into the corners and there wasn't quite as much runoff as we'd maybe be used to in a in a modern racetrack. So uh, in 1987, Nelson Piquet crashed quite heavily during practice. Uh, there was a tyre failure and he then missed the race due to injury. And then in the 1989 San Marino Grand Prix, Gerard Berger crashed his Ferrari at Tamburello uh, after his front wing failed. So because of events like this, they did feel inclined to try and slow the track down a little bit. But probably the most well-known changes that were made to the circuit came about following the 1994 San Marino Grand Prix, which is an event that, Will, you have been finding out a little bit more about. Yeah, and it's fascinating, before we get into it, kind of reflecting on when you started, you were talking about it being a temporary circuit in the 1950s, and it was a fast circuit, and you know back then the cars were nowhere near as fast as they were, even in the 90s, and to think of the gulf in technology between kind of the 1950s when you have this really it would have been a high speed circuit at the time because it has these kind of long straights and kind of it's it's a lot of kinks wasn't it with some yeah it's what gives it its duck layout you have a couple of kinks and then a couple of kind of right angled turns that come back um and the cars probably could have taken it then because they didn't reach the monumental speeds they were reaching in in the 1990s the interesting thing I found was that the the fastest lap during the 1980 Italian Grand Prix was Alan Jones, and that was a one minute 36. And then if you compare that to the fastest lap during the race from last year, that was a 115.4. So it's 15 seconds in all of those years, which sounds like a lot when you put it down, but that I feel like that just shows how quick they must have been already what year was yours from uh, so that was 1980 was the one minute 36 so that doesn't include the changes to slow the cars down that came in after the 1994 race so the 1994 san marino grand prix i guess we'll kick in we'll kick into it part of the reason motorsport is thrilling is because it's dangerous right and it's the reason that we look up to to drivers as being superhuman and super brave and it's because of weekends like this it was probably one of the worst periods in modern Formula One. Most people know it's the race that we lost in Senna, but it's often forgotten that Roland Ratzenberger died the day before. Um, you know, you have a double tragedy at this circuit, and after Roland Ratzenberger lost his life, Ayrton Senna said, well, the head of the F1 medical team at the time said to him, they were watching TV, and he said, look, you're a three-time world champion. Like, you don't need to do this. Let's just go fishing and call it a day. But it was something in him. He said, no, this is something I, I've, I've got to do. I've got to get on with it. But I wanted to start kind of focusing on Ratzenberger and giving him the kind of same amount of airtime as we mm-hmm. give Senna because it was Ratzenberger's first season in Formula One. 
Uh, so who you know who knows what he could have gone on to achieve? But it was it was qualifying as well. And so he was coming out of this Villeneuve kink as we were talking about the straights. Kind of had these little kinks in, um, and he completely lost control of his simtech uh, and whacked into a concrete barrier. And like these concrete barriers are very close to the circuit, um, so you lose any kind of downforce and can't move around those kinks. You're gonna completely just smack into it. And that's what happened. He'd run over a curb early in his lap um, and picked up some front wing damage, which when you're traveling at 315 kilometers an hour, which is what he was, like it makes it so hard to turn that car. So it's almost 200 miles an hour that uh, he hammered into this concrete wall. Horrible, horrible event. Um, he was airlifted to hospital, but he suffered a basal skull fracture and was kind of, I think he was pronounced dead while the qualifying session was still going on, which is also insane that the session even restarted, let alone the race when it the next day. But the next morning, the GPDA, uh, which had been disbanded a couple of years earlier, was effectively reformed. Um, the drivers kind of got together and said they needed to make a pact almost and this trade union and the morning before the race, they kind of appointed Michael Schumacher, Gerhard Berger, and Ayrton Senna as their directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that goes on to this day. I think George Russell has just become a director taken over from Roman Grosjean. Sebastian Vettel is one. So it was kind of reformed to ensure that the driver's safety was back at the forefront of everything, or at least considered. And so that was kind of their way of getting together, talking through what happened and making i guess coming together to race again that afternoon because it was kind of the the show must go on attitude that showbiz has is what formula one always had back in the day no matter what happened the race kind of had to happen i guess it's a very stoic attitude to have i think yeah and it's kind of a similar thing to what we saw with roman grosjean's crash at bahrain last year there did seem to be that mentality that Yes, he's had this horrific accident. We've seen him get out of the car, but we need to get back to it and carry on, which was quite jarring to watch. Yeah. And it made you kind of admire the driver's mentality and metal just to be able to watch the repl- replays of that and then still get back in the cars and line up on the grid again. Yeah, it's, I think it's kind of what I was trying to get a, like a sense of at the beginning is that like, these drivers know they're going in to sit surrounded by fuel and drive at 300 kilometers an hour. They know it's risky. And if something happens and someone's okay, then I think the expectation is, you know what you're getting yourself in for and it's all okay. That, you know, literally no one died in Grosjean's case. In the San Marino case, it was slightly different, um, unfortunately. So the race got underway on the Sunday in the afternoon uh, Senna was on pole from Schumacher, even though he declined to set a time in the second qualifying session. Qualifying was a bit different then, where there was like a couple of hours on Friday and a couple of hours on Saturday. And it was just, they took your best time. There was no knockout. It was just kind of set times. And so he refused to get on the track on, on Saturday out of kind of respect to Roland. And there was an early crash in the race itself. Um, Pedro Lamy smacked into JJ Leto's uh, stalled Benetton on the grid, um, which wasn't a great start. It brought out the safety car. And again, 
this was the third safety car in two years because they'd only bought the safety car back the year before which is a bit mad wait till i tell you what the safety car was because we currently have a mercedes-benz and an aston martin and everyone's very excited about the aston martin it was a Vauxhall vectra which is mad and quite rightly a lot of the drivers were complaining they couldn't keep the temperature in their tires behind this vectra <laughs> but unfortunately kind of the driver's worries were founded to be warranted when Senna was battling Schumacher and I think it was only the second racing lap it was the seventh lap and kind of the first high speed left hander Senna just couldn't get his car turned around again one of these kind of small kinks uh, and he was going at 305 kilometers an hour just couldn't get it pretty much went straight on into a concrete barrier which when he made an impact with it it was 211 kilometers an hour he, he was killed pretty much instantly it does get worse and I wanted to highlight something again to prove how far we've come so there were marshals on the track there are ambulances on the track there is a driver having medical treatment given to him there is literally a helicopter on the circuit when Eric Comas was released from the pits to rejoin the circuit there was a mix up and somehow he was let to go around a lap like it is insane yeah, that just shows how far the sport has come just in terms of organisation and safety and just staying on top of everything that's going on. Well, there was an incident at qualifying was there in, in Turkey when the cars were released under a yellow flag for a qualifying session. And the, the reasoning was by the time they got rounded their outlap, they knew that it was going to be OK for this crane to be not in the firing line, which is still a bit iffy. But I mean, as a red flag, guys... I wanted to move on a bit because that was the horrific tragedy of the San Marino race. And it goes to prove that when we talk about the driver's bravery, it does mean something. It's not marketing about Formula One. That can often get forgotten, given that as we did move on, safety did get better, but not straight away. So the following race was in Monaco and it was Thursday practice. And uh, Carl Wendlinger had a crash at the Nouvelle Chicane. And that put him in a coma for two weeks. So on the Friday, the GPDA got together in a hotel and this was kind of what's going wrong. Because at this point, right, the last four official Formula One sessions went like this. Friday qualifying at Imola, Rubens Barrichello had a crash that launched him over barriers and his car was upside down. I didn't even mention that. The fact that that doesn't even get into this like lecture about safety in Formula One is mad. Qualifying two on Saturday was when Ratzenberger lost his life. Sunday in the race, Senna lost his life. And then the very next session, Thursday practice at Monaco, we have a driver in a coma. It's mental. It's absolutely mental. When you kind of think, why would you get into a car knowing that yours could be the next one to end up in a heap? Yeah, it's insane when you think about the frequency of accidents like that and things. Like today, they're freak accidents when they happen. And just for it to be every other race, just why, why would people do it? No, it's, it's absolutely mad. So there was this big thing on the Friday, because obviously the Friday at Monaco, they get the day off. And they had a lot of drivers come in and give them advice. They kind of hammered out over some hours what they wanted. Nicky Lauda turned up and kind of gave them advice. Obviously, he had been involved in 
a massive accident in the history of Formula One. And they decided kind of Martin Brundle became the chairman and a bit of a bastion for safety in Formula One with Gerhard Berger and Michael Schumacher staying as like the officers, as you were. And they just wanted a say in safety decisions. They wanted the ability to inspect the circuits and they didn't trust the hands that they were putting their lives in anymore. They wanted to kind of take that back a little bit. And the race in Monaco went off without a hitch, which is nice to know. Even nicer touch, Schumacher won, Brundle came second, Berger came third. Oh, lovely bit of PR. Yeah. <laughs> so a number of things have changed since then. Uh, first, if we're talking Imola, and um, we've talked kind of about some of those track changes, there are two new chicanes that are put in kind of at that first straightish section in sector one. Um, the drivers have to navigate and it cuts down the speed significantly. And that's what used to be the Tamborello corner, isn't it? Yeah. And we're also seeing some wider gravel traps to kind of put a bit of distance in between the circuit and those concrete walls. Mm-hmm. And where there are particularly dangerous concrete walls, there are some tyre barriers, which is great. That's a new step yeah. forward. The weird thing I found out while reading up on the circuit is that a lot of these concrete walls are there because there's a river right behind them. And so there's a river running alongside the circuit that is literally just behind that wall. Wow. And it seems like a mad place to put a high-speed corner with no gravel traps right next to a river. <laughs> yeah, well, there's the story about um, Ascari, isn't there? The week before he died, he actually drove a car off Monaco Harbour into the sea. <laughs> yeah. But again, it goes to prove that a lot of these classic circuits that we talk about are from a completely different time. And now we're racing beasts of modern machinery around them. But one thing I wanted to talk about, about these particular crashes, was the broadcasting of them. Because we went to university and we studied television. I think we're probably quite keen about talking about television in general. Um, So I think it deserves a mention. Because when Grosjean had his crash in Bahrain, we didn't see anything until we knew he was fine. They were very clear, and it wasn't just him either. They said, we're checking that the marshals are okay because the tyre flew off, and they didn't show anything. And that was a little bit worrying, but at least they didn't show us a flaming wreckage waiting for something to happen. Daniel Ricciardo wasn't too happy. I'm not sure I agree with his grievances so much. I think, again, like we were saying, when you were, if you know everyone involved is okay, then it kind of proves that the safety works it proves that the suits work it proves that the safety cell the halo the barriers all came together isn't that fine yeah i was going to ask if you'd seen daniel ricardo's comments this week about formula one's coverage on social media and how they put together a top 10 moments of 2020 and i think he claimed that eight of them were crashes yeah and he's come out and said that it's disgusting that the governing body of the sport is promoting crashes as being the most exciting parts of the year. Which I feel like, on the one hand, I kind of agree with. A crash isn't something anyone wants to see. Like, no one signs up to watch a race in the hope that someone has a horrific accident. So it's strange that they've become so integral. Yeah, and that's what I think the sport has to be careful of as it's attracting its new audience with Drive to Survive because they're kind of dramatising and romanticising these elements of the sport, which are, they are undoubtedly an element of the sport. You can't kind of get away from that. So I think they have to include some bits of it. If there's a battle going on for an overtake and that ends up in a crash, 
then yeah, I wouldn't mind that ending up in the top 10 moments. But it's not the sport, is it? I don't think you'd have a top 10 moments of the football season and eight of them would be horrific injuries or bad tackles. It, it would yeah. be goals and skills and stuff. And that's what you want the sport to be known for, or at least you'd hope so. So I agree with him in that sense. I don't agree with him about the live coverage of the actual race. Yeah, it's quite different because he wasn't happy about the live coverage either. But I think I agree with him more on the social media side, how in the aftermath you've had the time to think about it and why are those still the moments you're picking. Yeah. We obviously didn't have social media in the 90s. How did the coverage differ back then? Oh, it was, I don't say this lightly, bloody awful. The morals and the precedents are just completely different. So Ratzenberger had his crash and we're looking at close-ups of his head rocking around in the cockpit. And at one point, there is a helicopter shot of the medics performing CPR and chest compressions on live broadcast. For, for Senna's crash, RAI, who were the Italian broadcast, the host broadcaster, they were showing close-ups of them dragging his body out of the cockpit and kind of lying there motionless and trying to get in as close as possible. The, the BBC kind of pulled that. They thought it was too insensitive to show it. So they had like their own camera in the pit lane. But Murray Walker was still watching the pictures and you can only describe what you can see, right? And he was finding that quite upsetting. But the very fact that in Italy it was going out live, uncensored, as is. That just seems so completely polar opposites to where we would be today. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, could, could you imagine kind of showing those pictures of, of Grosjean in Bahrain and not seeing Grosjean come out? I feel like it would have been scarring for quite a lot of people. Yeah. Like that's the only way to describe it. Yeah, it, it's... Completely awful, but I mean, this is it is one race weekend, which I think it proves that like even if you did see it live on TV or you didn't, the events of it shouldn't be forgotten. I know people say, "Oh yeah, it's a weekend better to forget," but I don't think it is. I think this is one that you have to learn from. Senna was the last F one driver to pass away during a race until Jules Bianchi, so that's twenty years between those two dying. But he was the first F one driver to die in a day. Like literally a 24-hour period. It's interesting that you say this is an event that we should learn from. Looking back on it, it's quite clear that the sport really has learned from it. For a start, it made changes to the circuit to slow it down. And then it made changes to the safety cell in the car and the protective suits that people were wearing. Up until the point when we obviously had the tragic accident with Jules. And then the sport learned from that as well. And things like the halo that were brought in after that has been credited with saving Roman Grosjean's life. It's good to see that changes are being made and that the sport will only continue to get safer. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't the definition of madness doing the same thing twice and expecting different results? And if you don't change anything, then more people are going to end up losing their lives. I'm going to try and pick up the tone now because I realise that my section of this is going to be god-awful depressing. But Imola is a very important race and I hope that we have conveyed that and that we don't forget that going into this weekend's race, which will be a delight. Yes, hopefully. And uh, Will, what's, what's this weekend's race called again? Oh God, 
It's the 2021 Formula One Pirelli Made in Italy della Emilia Romagna Grand Prix. Yeah. Was that actually right? The only difference is it's Grand Premio del Made in Italy della Emilia Romagna. It's just the Grand Prix in a different place. I'm happy with that. So I guess let's do a quick prediction for what's going to happen this weekend. After such a good race in Bahrain, where it was, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen and we seem to be getting that Mercedes-Red Bull battle, or at least the Verstappen-Hamilton battle that we're hoping for. Who have you got for pole on Saturday? And what's your one, two, three on Sunday? So... I did. I, I had a quick look at last year's results when Valtteri Bottas was pole, Hamilton won, Bottas was second, and Ricardo was third. So it was quite an exciting race. I'm going to say this year it will be Max on pole, and then my podium, Max, Checo, Norris. Oh, 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 that is out there. So Mercedes having an awful weekend. Not awful, but just not to plan. Hmm, interesting. So I'm standing by that. Max Verstappen winning the race, Sergio Perez in second, and Lando Norris in third. Okay, well, I'm going to agree with Max getting pole and Max getting P1 because he went very well in Imola last year and he suffered a tyre blowout, didn't he? Which he didn't have much luck in some of those races in Italy. Um, so I'm going him peak for pole and I think he'll get the win I think mm-hmm. Hamilton will be second and I think I agree with you I think Checo will be third I think it's a high speed circuit which is going to benefit the Red Bulls but I still think Hamilton is going to, because it's quite a narrow circuit, I think he's going to have the skill to defend, I think Max will run away with it and there might be a bit of a battle for, for second, third, fourth between the other three cars. Well this is a good time to plug our fantasy league. If you are on the uh, F1 fantasy game, we have our own league. The code to join the league will be in the description. So if you just log on to your fantasy Formula One team, there's a join league box. And if you enter our code, you'll be able to see how your team compares to ours. But that is everything for this week's episode. We'll be back next week talking about Max Verstappen's Italian redemption, potentially, <laughs> if our predictions are correct. But until then, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. I am on at Owen Bellwood. Will, you are... At Will Longman. And we now do have a Friday Formula Twitter, so that is at Friday Formula. You can get in touch with us on there to let us know your thoughts on Imola, favourite races through the, uh, through the years, and any particular highlights of that circuit. We'd love to hear what you think of it. We'll be back next week talking a little bit more about this weekend's race and how we think it's gone, whether our predictions were correct. So we do hope you can join us then. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.